when people speak to you, no matter what the context, but especially in business, in networking or on the phone, if you're doing a customer service, there's always three ways that you can respond. You can respond negatively. When some of them, some of these reps do that, they just could, they could care less and it shows. You can do sort of middle of the road, which is I think where the vast majority of people who do the job land. They do what they're supposed to, but they don't go beyond that. They're, they're not interested in other words, in who the other person, who the person on the other end of the line is. They're just not thinking to pay attention to that. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keats. How many listening think that your interpersonal or emotional intelligence skills contributes to your success or other success? Well, of course, we know the answer is a lot, right? We know that it does, is that people who are socially awkward or have no interpersonal communication skills, they really do go down the list as far as the ability to be successful, not from a judgment point of view, but from a competency point of view. So today's guest, Paul Edwards, is an international bestseller, and he's host of the Influencer Networking Secrets podcast. So we're going to talk about, or we have talked about already in this show, about really our interpersonal communication, some mindset. What is it we need to do to be able to influence others in a positive way, not in a manipulative way, not in a way to be able to kind of get your own way, but also or really from the other side is to be able to, how do I serve others so that people want to give back to you? And so we'll cover that in a really fascinating journey of Paul being born in Canada, then living in the U.S., then living in the U.K., then back to the U.S., and just his journey in this sequence of events and how all of us can learn from, every single person listening can learn from uh, developing some of the skills that he got as a young person from his mentor. Now, to support this, one of CRG's expertise is to help others to understand their personal style, who they are, and how I build credibility with people who are the same or different than me. And so we have spent last year, we worked really hard and we launched it this year, depending on when you're listening to this show, our new e-course, Why Aren't You More Like Me, based on my book, but also based on our number one best-selling assessment, the personal style indicator, where participants said, hey, this is the best assessment on personal style or personality I've ever taken. And that's their feedback to us. But that course will really equip you with the insights, the step-by-step, the practical applications to be able to have emotional and interpersonal intelligence at a whole new level. So on top of that, in today's show, Paul really shares his insights from being an international bestseller as also really teaching others on how to influence. Welcome, and thank you for listening to this show. If you like what we're doing, please pass it on, let other people know, share, leave a positive comment in whatever platform you're listening on. Here's our show with Paul Edwards, and thank you for listening. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, today is about connecting with others, and we have an expert in that space around networking. 
And of course, you know, old school networking just sort of in person. And I suspect that our expert today will give us different ways about how we reach out, how we try to be authentic, all these different things. So welcome to the show today, Paul Edwards. Paul, welcome for joining us. Ken, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, you have your own podcast, and we'll get into that promotion later on, but you have a book, Business Beyond Business. But before we get into your expertise, Paul, a little bit about your story. Where did you grow up? Well, it's funny you should ask uh, as I appear on a Canadian podcast because I actually hail from Edmonton, Alberta, originally. Really? Um, well, we'll, uh, we'll forgive you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I especially I, I love uh, tea. I have cousins who live actually in the Vancouver area, so we we uh, enjoy giving each other jibes over Facebook uh, to that same effect. Oddly enough, the early life follows uh, Wayne Gretzky very closely. I was born in Edmonton in 1980, which is basically the year his uh, career really took off. Mm. And then uh, we, so I grew up and going to elementary school, it was the city of champions. It was a special place to be in the 1980s uh, because of the the excitement around the hockey team. And it was generally good economic times. In 1988, he got traded to the Los Angeles Kings. And coincidentally, my father had been trying to get an H-1 visa into the United States. Uh, He had dreamed of moving to Southern California and wanted to uh, recreate his business there after the uh, oil price crumble of the mid-80s that uh, hit Alberta especially hard. So we ended up in December of 88, which is just two or three months after Gretzky left, we also left and ended up in the same place he did in Los Angeles. Of course, you sent him a note and said, I followed you, Dwayne. I, I did attempt to write him to that effect. He never, he never actually replied to me. But uh, <laughs> that's surprising. Um, that's shocking. Okay. Yeah, but I so I spent the following thirteen years mainly in Southern California, and I I graduated high school there, and I became a U.S. citizen at age eighteen. Not long after that, I spent a few years sort of diddling around, um, made a made a bit of a mess of things as a as a as an inexperienced young man. Uh, but I had a mentor who was a very gifted communicator and very persuasive salesperson, independently wealthy, retired, uh, but he was uh, quadriplegic. And so the, the trade-off was I had a young pair of legs and a strong back to help him with things he needed around the house. And in exchange, I got to spend, um, actually, I think it was over a year day-to-day wow. with him. It was almost like a, if you've ever read the book Tuesdays with Maury, it was it was that kind of experience for me. It regenerated and gave me a lot of confidence, and and I could tell as soon as I left because I was walking around, you know, sixty pounds lighter and uh, and just charming people left, right, and center, and making connections with them and and getting my way because of how his influence had rubbed off on me. And what age so, are you? Eighteen at this time? You said or twenty? Yeah, 21. I'm I'm walking out of this being in this man's presence for over a year and I'm going, you know, I'm walking I visited my parents. They were living in the East Coast uh, in Pennsylvania at the time. Went to New York City and then moved overseas to London and I just found that all this all these social skills I picked up from him were helping me get my way and getting and building relationships with people and making people laugh and having connection with them. So that kind of built from there. I went into uh, the military 
in my 20s and learned an awful lot of lessons there from a very different perspective, but nonetheless equally important about now, connection. Now I- Sorry to interrupt your flow, which is amazing, Paul, so thank you for that. But I just want to back up for a second. What was it that your dad did? What was his business? He was an advertising man. That was his career. He started out as a photographer, but became uh, very good at, particularly at strategic account planning. He was creative. He was a writer like me, and and he was um, very good. He, He served in several senior executive roles, including he owned his own agency in Edmonton in the 1980s and attempted to reproduce it in Los Angeles when we got there and had some success for a while. But that was basically, he was career advertising executive. Mm. Now, remind me, how did you come into knowing this person who was paraplegic that really influenced you and mentored you? That was a a, a funny thing. I was um, close to being pretty much out of out of cash, out of options. I didn't have any career prospects. I didn't have a job. I was living in this ramshackle apartment in the actual district of Hollywood, kind of the uh, bohemian musician's existence, if you will. And I found this ad in a publication called the Los Angeles Recycler, which is where people buy, sell, and trade stuff. And, you know, the, ver- the, the Craigslist of the day, I guess you'd call it. Mm. And... Um, I I saw this ad and it said, Santa Monica Beach Apartment, rent free in exchange for assisting an executive, must be morally and ethically excellent. And I said, well, I can do assisting and I'd love to live on the beach and my morals and ethics could definitely use some improvement (laughs) at the time. So that's how I found him. It was, you know, back in those days, you didn't you could do it through relationships, but I didn't know how to do that. So I just answered an ad and took him up on it. Wow. So, and I'm sure you're going to get into it as we go further than the show, but what was he immediately sort of teaching you, Paul, that, that was maybe not on your radar at that time? Oh, well, there were all sorts of things. And as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm working on a third book, Business Beyond Business is my second book. I'm working on a third book in which I'm going to detail some of this. But to to answer your question, Ken, I just went in there with a whole lot of assumptions about how things were done, how the world works. And he basically spent a year blowing them out of the water one after the other. For a painfully practical example, he would have something to say if I got up in the morning and he asked me how I slept. And he would ask me every day. When I got up, he'd say, how did you sleep? And if I didn't say excellent or good, he would immediately take me to task. And it was one of those mindset things. You know, people don't have a good night's sleep. But what he was attempting to get me out of was getting stuck in just ordinary and instead exercising gratitude and broadening my mindset so that I could look at even a night where I maybe didn't sleep as well as I'd like to have slept but by comparison to how badly some people around the world are sleeping, not to mention the fact that, you know, all of the, the future and the opportunity and, uh, and, and growth I could look forward to, I just started to change how I looked at the world. And I, I started to believe that every day, the more I practiced it, the every day was an excellent opportunity of blessing for me to go out and, and, and do whatever I did. Mm. Isn't mindset so important in how, you know, if you think about the work that you're doing now, and we'll get into London here in a minute, is just how many people 
just don't even pay attention to this? It's an unfortunate thing. What I keep seeing over and over, Ken, is that the unique thing about us as human beings, as distinct from animals, is that we have such a powerful ability to change that, that we have such a remarkable ability to reframe how we look at any given situation, including ones that are painful, destructive, setting back, etc. We have the ability to say in the moment, this isn't what I wanted. I acknowledge the discomfort of this, but it doesn't mean it's over. It doesn't mean I've blown it. It doesn't mean I don't get another opportunity. It doesn't mean anything. It just means not today, but at another time, there'll be another time. Yeah, for sure. And I'm sure we'll delve into this a little bit more as we go forward. But I mean, it's something that we teach here and just how important it is as far as mindset and what the difference that it makes. And you're a prime example of that. And thank you for sharing that. Now, you're using all these interpersonal, emotional intelligence, communication skills. Mm-hmm. And you said earlier in the interview that you said, well, I was getting what I want. Well, what was that now that you were in Europe? Well, as an example, um, when I got to London, I was just hit the ground running, find a job. What motivated you to go to London? What would, I mean, here you are, you have uh, all of the U.S. to kind of plug into. What was motivating you to go over to the U.K.? I, uh, well, for starters, my dad is British. Um, he, and, and so he had been careful mm-hmm. to make sure that I had a British passport available at the time because native born British citizens can, uh, bequeath their citizenship to the first generation. I think it, I'm not sure if that's still the rule, but it was at the time on top of that, my mentor who I was living with in Southern California told me, he, he proposed it to me one day. He said, have you ever thought about traveling? And my mind just made decisions so quickly in those days. And I said, no, but now that you mention it, I have family. I had family that I could land safely with in London. I had been to London before. And I also found myself very comfortable among Europeans and other colonials, you know, uh, South Africans, Australians, New Zealanders, all the the legacy of the British Empire, the people, I found I could get along with them very easily. Probably a little bit more attuned to some of the subtleties of their cultures than an, than the average American just because of my background. On that suggestion, I, I made the decision in a couple of minutes. I was like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. That would get me very far away from everything I'm ever used to, and I can go out and explore like I've always wanted to, and I already knew that I had family there that I could at least stay with for the first week or two while I was getting situated. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So off you go to the UK. Now what? Yep. Yeah. So um, the first thing was I was like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to find a job as soon as possible. I don't want to be calling my father and asking him for money. And I don't want to, I'm definitely not interested in not having a job, not having an income. So I went straight to work at it full throttle and found and got myself a temporary job um, working in central in the, excuse me, not central, but in the uh, financial district of London with a shareholder communications firm. So to make a long story short there, they needed people to just call and answer questions and and take phone calls from people as there were various um, exchanges of shares and all that on the market. But by now, I'm taking these calls under the rubric of 
how I had watched my mentor handle himself on the phone. And so the first thing I noticed was that everybody who listened to, you know, they had people listen to your calls for quality control. They actually do that, believe it or not. (laughs) Yeah, you often wonder. Yeah. And, uh, and everybody who listened to my calls just absolutely loved them. They said, you're, you're conversational. You get the people engaged. you you make what is otherwise a, a rather tedious and boring call. Interesting. And then, so, so in December of this is 2001, there was a big cut of a bunch of temp people and a bunch of people lost their jobs, but they kept me and, and me, it was maybe me and one other person that they kept on staff for a further several weeks before the bottom really dropped out and then they had to let it everybody who wasn't permanent go and it would be like you know they'd probably pick them up back in the new year but in the meantime i had decided well i'm going to go look for a job that's a little bit closer to where i live because i wasn't living in the financial district i was living over in west london so i uh interviewed with a company there called OneTel which ended up becoming the number one competitor to British Telecom in their customer service line and got hired. And that was a huge relief for me. And then over the seven months that I worked there, they first promoted me to team leader in customer service. Then they launched a new mobile product and they, they said, everybody send us your best rep from your team. So they sent me. And then I got promoted to team leader on the the mobile product because I was the only one who knew how to deal with the escalated calls and the angry customers and all of that. So it was just, I I just kept getting advanced and I kept getting promoted and I kept, people kept appreciating what they saw and how I spoke and how I dealt with people. You know, it was just, I I was like, there's something to this. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm going to keep pursuing it and finding out because it works. So when you think about it, Paul, and of course, you know, as a customer service sales trainer, it is amazing how many individuals are in these call centers don't have communication skills. Yes. With you, what was it that you were doing then there? And, you know, we'll get into this networking thing here in a minute, but what were the communication nuances that you were using that every single person listening to this podcast could use as they interact with others that, the rest of the team members were maybe oblivious or not doing. What are some of the components, the elements, Paul, you know, being conversational, listening, whatever, that you were deploying on a day-to-day basis that was causing this success to occur for you? That's an interesting question. And probably the best way I can think to answer this, Ken, is to say that when people speak to you, no matter what the context, but especially in business, in networking or on the phone, if you're doing a customer service, there's always three ways I think that you can respond. You can respond negatively, right? And some of them, some of these reps do that. They just could, they could care less and it shows. You can do sort of middle of the road, which is I think where the vast majority of people who do the job land, they do what they're supposed to, but they don't go beyond that. They're, they're not interested, in other words, in who the other person, who the person on the other end of the line is. They don't care. They're not just, they're just not thinking to pay attention to that. For, for, for whatever reason, I can't tell you why. For whatever reason, it, it's not a, a huge on their priority list to reverse that. But I walked into this position and I said, I'm going to talk to these people much the same way that I'd watch my mentor talk to people on the phone. And he never had a dull, boring conversation. 
Never, never, ever, ever. He would, it didn't matter what it was. He would find a way to crack a joke or he would notice the accent of the person on the other end of the line, or he would, he would start making social conversation as though, you know, he was actually meeting them in person, but just over the telephone. So I remember the first time I, I did this, when I was still in the, in the shareholder communications firm, we were all taking turns demonstrating our, our ability to follow the script or the, the general uh, way they wanted the phone conversations to go. And I did the whole thing just a moment here while I look up your information to the, to the person on the other end of the line. And most people will stop at that and, and there'll be a long period of silence while the computer that the uh, operator is looking at boots up the account information. Mm-hmm. And I decided I was going to fill that silence. And so what I, I, I started, I remember the guy, I even remember the, the, the face of the guy that I was doing this was because I, I could see him at the other end of the room on his headset pretending to be the customer. So I said, how was your weekend? And he wasn't expecting that. I saw his eyes look up over the desk at me and he started smiling and then he answered, you know, he's like, Oh, my weekend was great. Thank you. Thank you. And and how was yours? You know? And so it, it just starts, I've seen some reps do this. I've, I've heard them on occasion, you know, there, some companies even train them to do it now. Um, a lot of, uh, counter clerks these days are, are, are encouraged to do that as well. So I don't know, you know, it, it may be becoming more mainstream now, but back then nobody that I knew did it except for me. So just this underlying interest in the other person, period. Curiosity, yeah. Curiosity is is one of the critical traits you'll read in my book. That's If somebody comes to me and wants to be part of, of what I'm building and they're not curious, they're just like, I just, you know, I just mm-hmm. want to be part of it, but that, that's all they say. I'm probably not going to do business with them because I just, I'm a curious person and I like to do business with curious people. It's interesting, Paul. One of the things my wife and I do, we play a bit of a game, and we're going to get into your 10 secrets here in a second, but I think it just behooves everybody who's listening. We go out socially, and we play a game to say, can we go the whole night where some nobody asks us a single question? And mm-hmm. we've been able to achieve that, not sort of intentionally. It's just that nobody else is interested in answering, asking a question of, Paul, well, how are you doing? Or Paul, how's your business going? Or Paul, what's new with your daughter? Or Paul, what's new with your wife? What's Paul, what's new with your house? Nobody asks, or what's new with your business? They just are focused on themselves. And if we continue to ask questions, they never stop that flow. So I've actually seen and been in rooms with people who are extremely educated, you know, PhDs, that kind of stuff, and very little social skills to ask about other people and what's important to them. Oh, particularly the, the ultra educated, because that's very much a sort of, you're either my peer or you're not. Right. And if you're not, I don't, there's nothing really to talk about. And I'm not saying that to attack anybody listening who has a PhD. I know there are plenty of people who are precisely the opposite of that, but the one bad end that we go to is being totally wrapped up in ourselves and not engaging at all. The other bad end is being so wrapped up in ourselves that we are too good to speak to the average person. And Mm -hmm. this is just not how I approach this. I I would just go and talk to anybody. It didn't matter who it was because you never know if you're not having conversations with strangers and you're an entrepreneur, you're in my opinion, you're making a mistake. 
or even developing the skill to be able to do that. So thank you, Paul. So Paul, yes. you're you're in the UK. Let's now kind of where did you go after that? Did you, you obviously didn't stay there because now you're in back in the US. So what's your transition from there? Well, in 2002, um, I had been wanting to do something with the military for a while because um, I sensed that, uh, you know, there, there was this whole aftermath of 9-11 and you know, I was a young man and that's what a lot of young men were doing. Mm. Um, so in late in 2002, I, uh, I lost a job. Well, I didn't no, I take that back. I quit from one job and went to another and my ego got the better of me and I got fired from that job. That would be a more honest way of putting it. <laughs> um, well, we, we were seeking that in this show, Paul. So that's good. Yeah. <laughs> so I got fired from that job and in, especially in, in London at this time, getting hired in between Christmas and the new year was a very difficult thing to do. So I had been looking at, you know, the British Army Reserve, they call it the Territorial Reserve, I think, over there, or Territorial Army, and nothing was happening there. And I contacted, through the website, I contacted the uh, U.S. military recruiting, and they actually had recruiting uh, officers in Germany. So they flew me out to Frankfurt, and I went to a recruiting station in Mannheim in southwestern Germany, and I signed up. And that took me to basic training back in Missouri for a couple of months. And then I went and I, my first duty station was Germany. And uh, that lasted a little while, but the, the main reason they sent me there, it turned out, was they were manning, they were getting the right kind of person, the right number of personnel for that unit to deploy to Iraq. And so I ended up spending most of 2004 yeah, most of 2004 and the first two months of 2005 in Diyala province in Iraq with the 2nd Battalion, 2nd Infantry, which is now famous for the Battle of Fallujah mm. in 2004. And then during that time in Germany, I also met my wife, who was an American civilian. She was there working for Northrop Grumman as a contractor. So when I got back from Iraq, we got married and then we got orders to come to Joint Base Lewis-McChord, which is right here by Seattle and Tacoma. And so that's how we ended up here. And then we've been here uh, for 14 years now. Now, when did you get out of the military? I finished my active service in 2008. And so I went and to complete a degree at Pacific Lutheran University in Tacoma starting in the fall of 2008. But I also had a little bit of time left on my contract. So I stayed in the reserves in a public affairs unit learning. And so that was that dovetailed with my degree in communications was writing uh, news stories and press releases and photojournalism. Cool. What were some of the principles? You know, my uncle is a retired colonel. He was stationed in Loire. So I'm familiar with that area that you were in Germany. What were some of the principles you learned there in the military that the audience could glean from? Well, in my first book, I wrote about this to some extent because one of the downsides, if you're a very extroverted talker who likes to chat with people, likes to make conversation, the military will, will help you pare that back a little bit. And what I mean by that is you learn very quickly to pay equal attention to different types of people. And not all of these people, even though they're wearing the same clothes you are, 
they have a very different style of relating. Um, and this is something that was missing for me as a category. I didn't understand <clears throat> why some people seemed cold to me. Others seemed like they wanted to make some degree of conversation. And then there were others that I really got along with. So I wrote about it in my first book. And I said, you know, one thing I, one thing I learned is that anytime you're joining a new group and I, I transpose this to a networking group, anytime I start attending a new group where I don't know everybody, I fall back on my, what I learned in the military, which is, you know, as soon as you join a new unit, you're brand new to the platoon. You just watch for a little while. You don't, you don't say much unless people speak to you. You don't just come out and start making chit chat because what that does is it makes all of the people who have been there for a long time uncomfortable or it, in some cases it can incite them against you. So I hate to use the term pecking order, but it, but it is kind of like that. And it's actually a very useful principle when you're meeting new people. As good as it can do you to, uh, to be curious about people, it can also be equally useful to just sit and let the pre-existing dominant personalities interact and start to watch how things happen. And so I incorporated that into my strategy as well. Well, curiosity can be passive too, as an observer. So yes. that's what you're saying is, can I just pay attention to what's going on here? Yeah. So I get a sense of that before I kind of jump in. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. So and now you're this, back here. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and what this all, what this all adds up to is you have a very well-rounded way of reading people, you know, because if, if, if they aren't particularly talkative, then you can seize the opportunity. But if they are, if they already have a pre-existing culture and you're the new, new person, then like you said, you can be passively curious. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's one of the things we teach, right? As personal styles here at CRG and understanding yourself, understanding others. And most people, you know, the research shows over 70% or just sort of oblivious to this concept completely. Mm -hmm. And that's why they seem to miss it or don't, aren't able to build relationship as, as intentionally as they'd like to or could. So now you've, you've written this first book, you moved into this second one, and you know, we only have about 15 minutes left, Paul. And so I want to just kind of dive into, you know, beyond, you know, business beyond business or really these 10 secrets of networking. And I want to apply it generally to the general audience as much as possible, as well as business. So what are some of these secrets that you have put and embedded in this book around networking or building relationship success? Well, my favorite one, they're not necessarily ranked in order in the book, but my favorite ones are, I've just developed little slogans for them. So the first one is called be a magnet, not a pusher. Mm. Um, and this is just basically learning how to create pull. There's actually a book out there somewhere called creating pull. I forget who the author is. But the whole concept here is instead of being the stereotypical pushy salesperson, what you do is you create this gravitational pull towards you by, by adding value and being generous up front. And so the, the, my target client, right, the, the person I'm actually looking for as a coaching client and as a part of my mastermind is, is someone I call the radically generous entrepreneur. And you know these people, you can tell very easily because, you know, they, they come with a giving hand. They, they basically have, they come, you know, offering advice, information, 
they offer introductions, they offer just any kind, any number of things that an entrepreneur would be looking for, and they don't want anything in return. So that's that concept. The second one I would say is pro bono publicity, which is basically what you and I are doing right now. And it's not the only way to do it, but podcast is a very useful way to have an intimate and meaningful conversation with somebody, especially if you don't know them that well, and build on that so that later on you can connect each other with other people that you know. So one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons I do my podcast is to have the opportunity to network with entrepreneurs all across the world and showcase them to people I know and also let my personal style rub off on them so they can get to know me and see if, if, you know, if there's somebody in their network that, that they would want to introduce to me. Mm. Well, uh, not to interrupt the flow, but there's, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the new study that Harvard came out with around the characteristics and qualities of for longevity. And one of those characteristics was being radically generous. Mm. They called it generosity, just like you have it listed there in your bio. And the people that, that are generous live longer. So, yep. whoa, hello. So there's just, yeah. you know, there's an old saying, it's better to give than receive. But the reality is, is that I actually gain more by being a giver. And uh, you're familiar probably with uh, Adam's book, Give and Take. And he mm-hmm. proved that scientifically, that those that give, but there's a methodology to it are much better than the takers. The takers get more to start with, but they get way less later on because people figure it out and say, listen, <laughs> I'm not going to help Ken because he's taking everything from me. But if Ken's giving, then I'll help him. And it's yeah. just, so what you give, you're going to get back. Yes. The, in um, Success Magazine had a story about it a while ago. There are the, the, the very, very top 1% of the 1% of the most successful entrepreneurs on the planet are also far and away the most generous, even though they are also the richest. And, and it's not to, not to downplay the generosity of anybody else. It's just to say that there's a common trait among them. It's one of those, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's a key performance indicator almost, right? It's, it's like, if you aren't practicing this as a routine, as a, as a way of life, you are less likely to be the, among the very most successful people on the planet. Isn't it interesting, Paul? A lot of times uh, people who are well off get sort of a bad rap and those that don't have it want to kind of take, but what they don't really realize, and I have some fairly well off individuals, they're the most, many of them are the most generous people that I know. They just don't make any fuss about it. They just go about and do it. And in fact, they don't even like the attention for the majority of them. Yeah, that's precisely how it is, because we have to remember, no matter which way they go, a person in that situation is going to encounter flack. If they do nothing, they'll be accused of being greedy. But if they go out there and they say, hey, look, I'm helping this person, then it's self-aggrandizement, right? And, And we don't want that either, because that's not the reason you do it. But they, they, exactly, they don't want the publicity they're just doing what they know how to do. And, and all that's changed from before when they were a startup is their generosity has been amplified because money's an amplifier. That's what it does. It, it, if you're a jerk, it amplifies you to be an even bigger jerk. And if you're a very generous soul, then you're going to become 
a ridiculously generous soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I make a statement sometimes, you are a jerk, but you just don't have the money, or as far as really greedy, but you don't have the money to prove it. So, uh, you know, just give yourself some money. And if you have nothing, it's, you still, it's your heart. And you, are you greedy? Or are you generous? What, what's the situation there? So when yeah. we think about, you know, embracing that, we get that. And generosity, thankfulness, these kinds of things, you know, that being slightly different. What are some other characteristics and qualities that, as a listener, I want to embrace to be able to expand my network if it's personally, professionally. We know that majority of work that people get isn't through some kind of posting on Monster or Indeed or whatever it is. It, it is through relationships. So yes. what is it that your mentor was teaching you that you put into that second book that I could also just sort of embrace right after the show's over? Well, so after becoming a magnet instead of a pusher and being a pro bono publicist, those are two very powerful tools because again, what you're doing there is not selling, right? You're simply, you're, you're providing leadership, character, information, curiosity, right? All the things we've talked up until now, the further chapters, the, the more you go at this, the more tactical ways I discuss to do this. One of them, I say, I, I go by the saying, uh, not for profit is for profit. And I'm not talking about setting up a, uh, you know, an illicit uh, fundraising scam where you get to peel off a huge chunk of the money to buy influence or something like that. I'm talking about going and participating, supporting, and it doesn't have to be financial. You can, you can support with time, talent, skills, any number of things you can do. But because you go into these environments where you're, where you're working together on behalf of someone else who is less fortunate, very often you build connections just by virtue of being present. And I don't know if this is the same the world over, but I've certainly found it here where I live. Most nonprofits, their boards and their volunteers are made up predominantly of entrepreneurs because entrepreneurs possess the freedom to move about the marketplace without having to be tied to an office necessarily. So, so I, I just kept noticing that every time I would work as a, as a fundraising chair or in a, uh, in a, serving on a board somewhere or just showing up to volunteer for a work day, you know, that kind of thing, I'd make really good connections and have really good conversations with other people in business. And that get that alone set a distinction for me against the other I was in the insurance business at the time. So it's the other 500 people who do what I do. Mm. Cause you're, you're in that community leadership. You're seen as giving, you're seen as being generous with your time, your capability, your, your gifts it, versus maybe hoarding that for your own purposes. Correct. And, and, and I go on to point out in the, in the ensuing chapters after that, that uh, there's a, there's a very deliberate and effective way you can think about how to network with people who are what I call dream connections, right? People who are very influential, civic leaders, politicians, celebrities, uh, you know, very big names in certain industries. But at the end of that chapter, I get on to say, you know, if you, if you have a meeting with somebody like this coming up, then keep these things in mind. But for the rest of us, the whole point of learning these tactics is that we get to practice them on the average ordinary people that we're already networking with. And that's how you position yourself to be prepared when a big name does cross your path, right? Then you know exactly what to do because you've already practiced it a hundred times on 
everybody else that you that you uh, come across in your in your network. Mm. When you you know just to take the opposing view for a moment, uh, what are some reasons that people don't do some of these basic communication, emotional intelligence, networking things? What what gets in the way of them sort of embracing what seems to be apparent common sense? Well, if I knew that, <laughs> you know, I here's the thing. I think people probably most people I've met um, in business probably can do a lot of these things, but they can't do them at much more than a 50 to 60 percent level. Right. So they can they could. In other words, they could get uh, in the old grading system. They could probably get a D or a C minus in the category but they don't know how to move on to the B's and the A's. In other words, they don't know how to really drive this home. And a lot of times, going back to mindset, which we talked about at the opening, Ken, that just isn't a category for them. As, as an example, when I was in my second job in the insurance business, I was at Liberty Mutual Insurance in Tumwater. And they said something to me that pretty much sparked the whole networking thing. And, the, and the, the branch manager said to me, look, we don't want you to be in this office most of the time. You, if you're here, you should be binding coverage on a policy, you know, closing business, in other words, or uh, you're here because the customer wants to meet you here. But other than that, we shouldn't see much of you. And I didn't really understand it at the time, but what, what he was getting at was he wanted us to be visible in the community. And he understood that repetition and drive and determination in personal relationships would bring about the results that we wanted. So I took it to heart. I didn't really know how to start, but I did understand the concept of being 80% out of the office. And so I started going to every single networking opportunity I could find. And I started doing trade shows and setting up tables and, you know, passing out prizes and collecting information and calling people and closing business. And over time, what happened was I began to be very, a very predictable face. And the nice thing was we were also going through the big Facebook boom. You know, it was 2013, 2014. So, and, and I was unafraid to reproduce myself in a video so that I could be mm -hmm. in front of people in, in more than one room at a time, so to speak. And so I just maxed it out and used it to my full advantage and, over the next several years, my business went from doing paid advertising and logging hundreds of miles, going to fairs and functions and events to where I could just sit in my office and my phone would ring because I had so many people on whom I'd made such a good impression and had really taken a liking to me that I was top of mind for them when it came to recommending someone as an insurance agent. Mm. So if I'm just, um, well, I don't want to call it a, a regular person. So I'm not necessarily a salesperson, but I want to embrace these concepts in my life. Any, any tips how I can insert this into my life so that it can benefit me in some way or another? Oh, absolutely. I think, I think this, a lot of these things have, uh, maybe they look a little bit different in terms of the delivery, but even if you're working, you know, if you're just working a, like a government bureaucrat job next to a bunch of other bureaucrats, I think there's, there's potential here. And one example, these are three of my favorite questions to ask people to, to make conversation. And the nice thing is you can take these and rephrase them and use them multiple times, even on the same person, provided mm -hmm. you don't use them every, every day, 
right? Or, or twice a day, that'll be, that'll, that'll give it the game away. But I like to say to people, the first question I, I like to ask them is, so what's, what's going well for you lately? You know, what, what's got a smile on your face lately? What, what are you enjoying? What are you, you know, that kind of thing. And then the follow-up, <clears throat> this is especially important if you're dealing with entrepreneurs, but again, it works for anybody is what's not going so well for you lately. You know, where's the pain? Where does it hurt? What's, what's, what's the biggest problem? What's the hardest part about your job right now? What's, how's the progress being held up with your mm -hmm. family or with your marriage or whatever, you know, depending on the person. And then the third question is, what are you looking forward to? You know, have you got vacations coming up? Are you, have you got, uh, you know, a, a sports tournament or kids graduation or something like that? And, and basic, and I've done this enough times now, Ken, I've, I've put these questions in networking groups, in roundtable discussions, and I've said, let's go around the table and everybody answer these three questions. And I've asked them in, of enough people that just in conversations, and they, they never fail to produce the results you're looking for, which is people just, the people will talk about themselves all day. And when they do it, it's free information. It's just like when they post stuff on Facebook or LinkedIn. And if you have a pre-existing network of people that you've built up and you know, and you're resourceful and you're thoughtful, then all of a sudden you can become a, a power broker for them. You become the person who says, Oh, I know exactly who to talk to about that. I just did it yesterday. I had, I was in an online forum. A guy popped up with a question about who do I turn to for uh, making sure my online, my uh, e-commerce business is, is uh, you know, ready for it's, it's legal. You know, it's got all the, the legal language and disclaimers and all that. And I said, I know exactly who you need to talk to. It's my, my friend Kaylee. She's, uh, she's a trademark lawyer, and she works with clients in all 50 states and connected them this morning. So, but you wouldn't have known that. You wouldn't have answered, asked the question. There's, there's no way you would have been able to guess it without a question. Well, precisely. And in this case, the nice thing about social media is it also multiplies that in reverse, right? In the same way I can multiply my presence and be in more than one room at once, I can also get people's pain points or people's needs mm. from more than just one single conversation. Absolutely. Now, Paul, we're already running out of time. Can you believe it? Like, where'd that go? So it goes. Uh, you're a fellow podcast host, so you just have this flow about you. But uh, before we get to your last comments and thoughts, how can people get a hold of you? So you have your book and you have your podcast and you have your site. So just share that with the uh, audience today. Yes, for sure. Uh, the best place to go is the Paul S. Edwards. So it's Paul S. as in Simon Edwards dot com. I have uh, links to all of my podcasts and uh, there's, if you want to, this is totally voluntary. I'm not, you can reach out to me over social media if you don't want to do it this way. Um, but any listeners are welcome to download a free copy of Business Beyond Business. Um, you can sign up for the mailing list there if you want to. And if you don't, don't worry about it. I'm happy to provide a copy. Just tell me you heard, you heard me on Ken's show and, and I'll get you one. But that's, that's the best place to go. ThePaulSEdwards.com. Awesome. And then the name of the podcast so people can search for it? Influencer Networking Secrets. Influencer Networking Secrets. So that's great. We'll make sure that everybody that's listening, if you're driving your car right now or jogging, we'll have the links in the show notes so you can go to that later as part of that. So we sure appreciate you being on the show, Paul. Now to wrap up, what tidbits, what would be sort of this golden nugget piece of wisdom beyond what you've already shared that would encourage the audience to be successful in their life, other in business or personally? 
There is a uh, passage from Scripture that I don't, I, you'll have to forgive me, it's, it's in the Gospel of Luke, and I don't have the right wording for it. I'm going to try and summarize it. I could, I could Google it now, but then I'd be making a bunch of noise on my keyboard, which is not good for a podcast. So. But Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you, use worldly wealth to build friendships for yourselves so that when you lose it, you'll have people with open arms to receive you. It's, it's something to that effect. And really what this came home for me the day after I got, I got fired from my last insurance job, which was just over a year ago in June of 2018. And that was pretty much what I took to be the sign that the insurance days were over and it was time to become an entrepreneur to make a long story short. But the day after I got fired, I posted on Facebook because I had a lot of clients on Facebook, so I wanted to let them know and not leave them wondering what happened to me. I posted that we'd ended the business relationship and I was no longer with my previous company. Ken, I just got to tell you, I was inundated. I mean, instant messages, texts, phone calls, just pouring on me for hours that day from people of all directions who read my post and said, you know, reached out, Hey, I know this company's hiring. We're hiring. Hey, I know this business opportunity. If you want to be a part of that, some people called me to say, I can't believe they fired you. What do you, you know, some of my clients were just up in arms that I'd been fired. And it was one of the most, this is, this was confirming that scripture. I had used my worldly wealth, right? My, my time, talent, and treasure to build these relationships and to add value to so many people. Mm-hmm that when they got wind of one, what sounded like a pretty serious negative thing happening to me, they just came in droves and it, and it kept going all day. I mean, I couldn't stop it. I would say every time I tried to turn around, there was another message. How'd that make you feel, Paul, at that time? Well, I was profoundly grateful. I, I had already made up my mind that I wasn't going to, that I was going to try and become what I, what I'm becoming today. So I, I had to be ever so careful in how I responded, but overwhelmed. Yeah, I was overwhelmed by it. It was, mm-hmm. I, you know, people just coming out of the woodwork. Appreciative and, and humbling. Would both of those fit together? Uh, yeah. And, and, and not only that, but, you know, it, it, some of it was exactly who I would expect to do it. But others, I hadn't heard from them for a couple of years, you know. Mm. And here they were just, uh, you know, just it was it was overwhelming. And, and I was yes, I was very appreciative and humbled. Well, thank you, Paul. Well, Paul, thanks for spending time and hanging out with us today. Thanks for having me, and we're looking forward to uh, having you on Influencer Networking Secrets. Well, I look forward to that. Uh, SOS listeners, Paul Edwards. And so my encouragement is, is that when you think about Paul's story, is that wherever we go, we are leaving an impact, either a positive, negative, or neutral. So which one is it for you? Are you paying attention? Are you being empathetic? Are you really there to serve the person? Or is it one of these self-centered moments? I can't answer that. Paul can't answer it. But can you answer it for yourself? Is that really we get the most out of life when we give, when we serve, when we help others? So my encouragement is that you would just embrace these nuggets, these tidbits, these secrets that Paul has shared today. Thank you for leaving or spending, pardon me, your most valuable commodity. That is your time. If you like what we're doing, please share, pass it on, leave a positive comment on whatever platform you're listening on. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. 
thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.